Well, friends, we're in Genesis chapter 22, which I'm aware is not your typical Easter sermon, uh, and that's okay. It's what God has for us this morning. So Genesis chapter 22 um, will probably be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can flip there now. We'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What has he done? What kind of a God would demand someone to sacrifice their son? And we don't ask that question lightly, and we don't gloss over it. Um, We don't skim read until we get to the more comfortable parts of the Bible that we want to put on mugs and pillows. The text demands, you see how it slowed down? Abraham reached out took with his hand the knife. The whole narrative slows here to say, this matters. Don't shy away from this. The narrator gives us a clue in verse 1, a piece of information that Abraham himself does not have. It said, after these things, God tested Abraham. Not tempted. God does not tempt. It was a test. Abraham doesn't know it. He receives it as a command from God, and it's unsettling, to say the least. It's morally challenging. Still, we're not going to encounter anything this morally and ethically hard, awful, again, in the Bible, until the cross. The question is, what kind of a God would demand the sacrifice of a son? And the beginning of that answer, listen, Genesis you know, 23 through the rest of the Bible answers that question. But the beginning of that answer is the kind of God who wouldn't ask of us to do anything that he's not prepared to do all the way himself. You see, for when the father sent the son to the cross to die, there was no ram caught in a thicket. Jesus is the ram. In Acts 2, Peter says, quote, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Morally challenging. We held the knife. Jesus bore the wood up the hill, but the Father delivered him. He did not spare him. So two important things are happening in this story. First, the character of Abraham is being revealed by the test. That's what tests do. They reveal what you're made of. But more importantly than Abraham, the good example, is the character of God that's being revealed in this story and through this story. Now, I suggest to you this morning that the spotlight is not on Abraham as a great example, though he is. The spotlight is on God and his love. But we'll talk about both of those things. Um, Let me explain, starting with point number one, the son must die. The son must die. Look with me again at verse two. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
Now, I have to admit that um, I had a whole section here in the sermon prepared to talk about the faith of Abraham. So I said just now in the introduction, it's not about Abraham's faith, it's about God's love. And then I wrote like 580 words that were just about Abraham's faith. So I cut that because <laughs> a good writer once said, kill your darlings. Um, I cut that section and we're just going to stare straight at God's hold nothing back love for us. God's hold nothing back love for us. And this is the heart of the matter. How can a story about God asking a father to sacrifice his son be about the love of God? Well, back in the 400s AD, Augustine of Hippo said that the Old Testament is like an unlit, furnished room. There's no light in the room, but it's fully furnished. When the light of the gospel shines on it, Nothing new is added that wasn't already there. But lots of things are now seen that were before unseen. And if all we had was this story, without the New Testament, we'd be walking into a dark room, bumping into all kinds of furniture that we can't recognize. But the light of Christ has shone into this room. For instance, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's the light of the gospel shining onto this passage. The beloved son of the father was delivered. He was given. He was not spared. He was given to, de to death as a sacrificial lamb, as a substitutionary atonement, which means him instead of me. And he was delivered up because of the Father's love. For God so loved the world. We all know it, but how, how often do we let that soak into our bones? The so doesn't refer to how much God loves the world. Not, it's not for God so loved the world. The so grammatically means in this way. For God loved the world in this way. In other words, Abraham demonstrated his faith to God by not withholding his son. God demonstrated his love for you by not withholding his son. The son must die because we've got to see God's hold nothing back love for us. Or think about Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Abraham, will you spare your own son? I won't spare mine. In Romans 8.32, Paul's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. You always have to untie the knots that Paul makes with commas and grammar. If God didn't hold back his beloved son, his most treasured relationship, his beloved eternal son, perfect unity and love, pre-time, forever. And God was willing to not spare him. Then Paul's logic from the greater to the lesser, is there any good that he would withhold from us? If God did not spare Jesus from dying for you, is there any good that he would withhold from you? 
There is not. The Son must die because we need to see to get our hearts and our minds around God's hold-nothing-back love. Everything depends on it. We're going to face into more seasons of sorrow, abuse, persecution, irrational suffering, physical pain, and we need to know that God will not hold back good from you. We deal with this with our children all the time. I am a no parent. I'm good at it. I am quick to say no. That's not a brag. That's to my shame. God is a yes parent. The father can't wait to say yes to you. If it is good for you, he will give it for you. Everything God gives is needful. And nothing God withholds is needed. We're only going to be able to live. So that's us talking about God's hold nothing back love, right? But now think back to this faith of Abraham, this hold nothing back faith that we're supposed to imitate. And then we walk through life going, I don't know how I can live like that. God asks too much of me. Here's how to live like that. You will never be able to hold nothing back from God until you see how he has held nothing back from you. That's the only way forward. Y'all read Pride and Prejudice? Y'all watched Pride and Prejudice? (laughs) I'm not going to debate which one's better. We watched the 2005 version in our household, and that's just the way it is. Now, Elizabeth Bennett falls in love finally with Mr. Darcy at the end of the movie when she understands how fully he loves her, when she finally sees Mr. Darcy, when she goes, oh, I thought his character was this way, but I see his character now for what it really is. And oh, I thought he was cold and and proud, but it turns out he's not. He loves me completely. When she sees that about him, she falls madly in love. That's transformative love. It's why it's a good story is because it gestures at the truest story and the power of the gospel is apprehending the mercy of God in the person of Christ, seeing his love in such a way that you can't help but love him back. That's what Jesus does in our hearts through his spirit. It's why we listen to sermons. It's why we read our Bibles. It's why we pray. It's why we listen to praise music in the kitchen. We just need our minds and hearts to get around the love of God. The Father loves us and did not withhold his Son, but sent him to die for us. And because of that, we can have what the 17th century poet George Herbert was talking about when he said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. I love that. God knows that without the sacrifice of his son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we will be lost in our sin. Without seeing his love for us, we will never love him. And we will sin against him again and again and again, and we will pay for it. And it will be just and tragic. But God loved us in this way. 
He sent a ram caught in a thicket. He sent a substitute, him instead of us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If that wasn't in the Bible, we would not dare say that. Hi, I'm the righteousness of God. <laughs> Sounds like blasphemy. But the cross has always been scandalous and morally challenging. Because of his great love for us, God said the son must die. <laughs> Number two, the son must live. Look with me at Genesis 22, verse 5. Now, this is after, verse 5 comes in. God's called Abraham to, make this, uh, to sacrifice Isaac. He's gone three days toward Mount Moriah with two servants and his son. Stops at the foot of the mountain and then says this. Listen closely to Abraham's words, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. The grammar in Hebrew is even clearer than in English. He says, the lad and I will worship and we will, we will come back to you. Well, why does Abraham say that when he knows that his son must die? Because he has a rational thinking faith. Because faith is not blind. And faith doesn't just jump randomly for no reason. God created our minds and our hearts and our hands to be all engaged as the whole person in faith. So let's think about faith for a minute. Faith has two aspects. One is what we know about God. And two is what are you willing to do about that? That's faith. James 2, 21 through 24, quote, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So Abraham knew that God was a God who makes promises, and God was a God who keeps promises. That was the knowledge of God that Abraham had because he'd been walking with him for decades now and seen him be faithful to his word time and time again. So he applied the knowledge of God that he has to his circumstance and does something about it. Simply put, Abraham could say, the boy and I will worship and then we will come back to you because he had faith in the God of the resurrection. Remember Augustine's analogy of the unlit room fully furnished. Here's a little more New Testament light shed on this very passage by Hebrews 11, uh, verses 17 through 19. Quote, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, the word is reasoned, calculated, 
he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's process of thinking was reasonable and simple and straightforward. We can phrase it like a syllogism in formal logic. If God promised that he would save the world through Isaac, and if God has commanded him to kill Isaac before the promises have been fulfilled, then God must plan on raising him from the dead. See any wiggle room in that logic? Abraham didn't. Now, God had a substitute, but he did in a way receive him back from the dead, didn't he? That's the logic of faith. We are not called to an unthinking and blind faith. Nor are we called to a thinking faith that does not move us into action. We're called to imitate Abraham's faith, to apply what we know of God and act on it. Living faith in Jesus Christ looks at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and it says, if God is willing to love me like that, and if he's faithful to raise his son from the dead like that, then I can completely trust him and follow him. I can hold nothing back if those things are true. If premise one and two holds, the conclusion is foregone. We can hold nothing back because he's held nothing back from us. We can actually live the Abrahamic, Jesus-like life of faith as we behold the glory of God and are changed and transformed into his image. So that's Abraham's faith. What about God's faithfulness? Because that's really where the, shot, the spotlight shines on God. So remember what's at stake for Abraham. All the promises of God that Abraham has made for all these chapters we've been studying Genesis rest on Isaac, the offspring. How can God be good to his word if Isaac dies? But don't forget the salvation of the world rests on Isaac too. Through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Galatians 3, Paul quotes that and says that's offspring singular, not offsprings, and it means Jesus, and that's the gospel. Paul says that straight up. It says God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, and then quotes that verse. Therefore, all the promises of God and the entire hope and salvation of the world hang on this boy that Abraham is going to offer up. Feel the weight of that. If the son dies, all hope dies. But if the son lives, I'm here to proclaim to you all this morning the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus rose again, triumphing over death, and Jesus is alive. So hope is alive. What could be better news than that? But if he remains dead, if Jesus, if his resurrection's a myth, a convenient story passed down for 2,000 years, then the world has a lot of explaining to do because his resurrection has left undeniable footprints in history. But further than that, what becomes of your salvation if that tomb's not empty? Nothing. Paul says, 
that we, well, I'll quote it directly. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, go home and do whatever you want to do. This is a waste of time. Martin Heidegger, the philosopher, said that we're being toward death. It's what it means to be human for him. We exist in a deathward motion. Death-oriented. So milk life for all it's worth, right? Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, then absolutely everything has changed. When Isaac was resurrected, in a sense, like Hebrews says, then the promises of God and the salvation and the hope of the world were written in stone. You see the response after Abraham obeys. And the angel of the Lord, speaking for God himself, says, now I know, so therefore I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. There's a certainty, a concreteness to this new hope. The son lives, so the promise is very much alive. And if Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then God's promise of eternal life to all who are in Christ is written in stone, too. I will surely. If Jesus' tomb is empty, then we are not being toward death. We are being toward life. Our existence is a lifeward movement toward more and more and more vitality, not less. Old age and death, like Herbert says, become gardeners. We get planted to bloom. Because Jesus is alive, our hope is alive. That's what the resurrection means for us. As the old hymn says, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Strength for today, because if we are united to Jesus by faith, then as Tim Keller says, the power that is potent enough to remake the universe has come into you. <laughs> we do not walk through this world believing that. How, how would your suffering be different if we really understood that that kind of power dwelt in us by the Spirit of God? How would you face temptation differently? Strength for today. The resurrection means very real power and strength, and the name of Jesus is yours in Christ today. And bright hope for tomorrow. Because he is remaking the universe. It's not a what if. Eden 2.0 is coming. The final fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The whole world will be remade into a place of healing and of peace and of security and comfort and love and joy. No more debilitating sickness. No more murder. No more fear. Can you imagine life without fear? <laughs> No more loneliness. No more abuse. No more lies. That world is coming. We call it the kingdom of heaven. We feel the mist of its waters now, but it will wash over us like a tsunami one day.
and will be left clean and whole, vibrantly alive with Christ forever. And that world is only possible because the Son died. Jesus died for our sins in our place. He paid for all the wrongs that his people who put his, their faith in him have ever done and ever will do. And that perfect remade world is coming because of God's hold nothing back love for us. And it's only possible because the son lives too. He was raised for our justification. He ascended to the right hand of the father and is right now, his heart's beating and he's interceding for you at the right hand of God. And he is ruling and reigning until everything is made to be under his feet. Because Jesus is alive, the promises of God and the salvation of the world, they're certain. They're in stone. So at the end of Pride and Prejudice 2005 rendition, you know, uh, Keira Knightley and uh, Donald, what's his name? Elizabeth Bennett goes into her father's study. You remember the scene? I list my favorite scene. Uh, he, she goes into his study to ask his blessing to her marriage, uh, on her marriage to Mr. Darcy. So Mr. Bennett, the father says, Lizzie, are you out of your senses? I thought you hated the man. She says, no, Papa. Well, he is rich to be sure. You would have more fine carriages than Jane. Would that make you happy? She replies, have you no other objection than your belief of my indifference? None at all. We all know him to be a proud, indifferent sort of fellow. But this would be nothing if you really liked him. And she says, I do like him. I love him. He's not proud. I was wrong. I was entirely wrong about him. You don't know him, Papa. If I told you what he was really like, what he has done. Mr. Bennett leans forward and says, what has he done? We might read Genesis 22 and think God to be cruel and proud. Sacrifice your son for me. But when the light of Christ shines into this darkened room, the Spirit of God leans forward and whispers, what has he done? And in the light of Christ, we can reply, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That is what he's done, and it's what he will do. Because the Son died and the Son lives, we can love God, and we can hold nothing back in the profound and certain hope of an unimaginably better world that is surely coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you for carrying that cross up the hill and sweating blood in the garden and entering utter darkness on that cross in our place, experiencing the abandonment of the Father in our place. We praise you. You could have come down whenever you wanted to. And you chose to stay. 
And we praise you that when they put your lifeless body in the grave, death could not hold you. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will never overcome your light, Jesus. And our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great love for us, that you did not withhold good from us, even when it cost you your son. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. Amen.